podcast a journey through the world of classic country music with your hosts chris wainscott and jim o'malley we will be covering all of the great topics in country music from mama to prison to dancing to drinking to guitar picking to all the crazy deal with the devil hockey talking stuff you do on saturday night and how you try to get it past your lord on sunday morning so climb aboard the cart and let's go. On this episode of the Six String Hayride, we're going to visit some old friends who are going to be visiting their old friends. We're talking about the Rolling Stones and their long association with country music. We have mentioned this a little bit previously on our Rock in the Country episode, but today we're going to talk about the Stones in more detail. The genesis of this idea happened when we listened to this. An old damn radio is all that I've got. Just please hang Williams and some bad honky-tonk Cause I got to take a break from it all After hearing mixing those lines, I realized that the Stones really have had an association with country music a very deep and very true association with country music that has followed them for every decade of their career. Who influenced them? What drives them to continue dipping their toes into these waters? So climb on board the cart and let's go for a ride. Now that Chris has fired up the Wayback Machine, as Mr. Peabody used to say, uh, he's right. You know, the Rolling Stones have, and I don't think it's very much of a musical secret. I mean, they've been a very good country band and kind of folk blues band going all the way back. Sometimes two, three, four songs on a record. Oh, help me, please, doctor, I'm damaged. There's a pain where there once was a heart. It's sleeping, it's abating. Can't you please tear it out and preserve it right there in that jar? 
they were very much ahead of the curve in what winds up becoming around 1970, 1971, the whole country rock type craze that a lot of people in Southern California start to take credit for. So in 1968, we have kind of music culture, youth culture coming off of the whole Sgt. Pepper, Magical Mystery Tour, Summer of Love, all the psychedelic stuff from 1967 is kind of on its way out. Listen to what the flower people say. Ah, listen, it's getting louder every day. And the Beatles and Mick Jagger for a while wind up in India on their famous Indian meditation retreat. So you're away from the recording studio. You are away from an electrical outlet being pretty much within 10 feet of you all the time. You're kind of doing a summer camp holiday thing. What do you have? You have acoustic guitars. And you have a bunch of people sitting around singing together, sort of campfire tradition. So in nineteen sixty-eight, we see this huge shift in popular music and rock and roll music and I think at the beginning of the year, you get a real good indicator of what's coming. Because in February of 68, Johnny Cash releases Live at Folsom Prison. We've talked a lot about the musical and the cultural impact of that record. And where Johnny leads, you know, a lot of musicians are going to follow. In the United States, in July of 1968, we get the band with Big Pink. Take a load up. Robbie Robertson and LeVon Helm, Rick Danko, those guys, they really take a lot of country and folk traditions and create something that I think really defines that Americana label that gets used a lot in recent years now in music. And then August 30th of 1968, Graham Parsons leads the birds through the brilliant Sweetheart of the Rodeo. I remember are already seeing in the united states how some of the rock and roll guys are you know drifting off into country music 
And then during this time on any monkeys record you pick up, all of the Mike Nesmith stuff is really proper, excellent country songwriting. Hey, hey, mercy woman plays a song and no one listens. I need help, I'm falling again. Play the drum a little louder, tell me I can live louder if I only listen to the band. In England, we get, of course, the Beatles, the Kinks, and the Rolling Stones leading the way. And for all of these records and musicians we're talking about, it really winds up being the Rolling Stones that consistently stick with this kind of change in style. And they really go after it just full speed. And what they accomplish over the years and the songs that we're going to talk about today, it's really an impressive body of work. Um, so the Beatles released the White Album on November 22nd of 1968. And I did not know this until earlier today, looking things up. This is an incredible bonus for people going to the record store that day. The Kinks returned to a lot of acoustic music focused on really good storytelling with Village Green Preservation Society, released on the same day as the White Album. We are the Village Green Preservation Society. God save the duck. is a fun trip to the record store. And just two weeks later, December 6th of 1968, the Rolling Stones released Beggar's Banquet. This record is in the complete opposite direction of their last two efforts, Aftermath, and their Satanic Majesty's Request, which were nowhere near as good as Sgt. Pepper, almost as good as Magical Mystery Tour. Satanic Majesty's if Keith Richards said that, you know, we did that as kind of a piss take on the whole psychedelic thing because we didn't know what else to do and our hearts weren't really in it, I think I would accept that argument because it it's not terribly good. And what comes after really defines the stones, changes music, changes culture, and begins a really sincere, successful blend of country and folk traditions into what becomes classic rock and roll so yeah let's start with beggar's banquet december 1968 take me to the station and put me on a train 
expectations to pass through here again. This is the beginning of the time in the Stones' career when almost all of the guitar parts on the records were Keith Richards. Brian Jones, original co-founder of the band, he was not in good, healthy shape at this point. Over the course of Beggar's Banquet and the follow-up record, Let It Bleed, he really just kind of falls apart and is eventually dismissed from the band. Then he has a terrible run-in with a swimming pool, and the rest is rock and roll history. So Beggar's Banquet, with, again, this huge guitar contribution kind of falling on Keith Richards' shoulders, this produces some incredible acoustic music that really taps into country and country blues traditions. We have No Expectations, Dear Doctor... So Beggar's Banquet gives us uh, a really nice batch of country and kind of country blues type music. We have no expectations. And the slide guitar part on here is really the last proper contribution that the Stones get from Brian Jones. It's really lonely, haunting, almost Irish or Scottish kind of sense of isolation in it and a nice little helping of regret on the side. Johnny Cash did a wonderful version of this in 1978. Come and take me to the airport. Come and pour me. Cause I've got no expectations to ever pass this way again. And then we have Dear Doctor, which I think is that kind of humor and storytelling in folk and in country music. It could easily be a John Prine song. It's a guy who is getting dressed for his wedding his mom is kind of telling him to you know get his act together get moving and he's been drinking all morning because he really doesn't want to get married and it builds to this wonderful punchline he gets on the suit jacket reaches in there's a note and his beloved is run away with cousin lou there will be no wedding i put the ring in my pocket Darling, I'm sorry to hurt you, but I've no courage to speak to your fine 
and oh boy the young man of the song tears of relief and probably more drinking uh we also get factory girl so listen tonight we thought we'd try a number we don't do very much it's from a sort of country song well, sort of like that which album is it from bill it doesn't know it doesn't know beggar's banquet someone said Salt of the Earth, which is sort of the beginning of Keith taking a more active lead vocal role, just kind of at the beginning here. They drink to the hard working people, they drink to the lonely. Raise your glass to the good and the evil. Let's to the salt of the earth. It's a real country tinged ode to the working guy and the things that people suffer through and put up with. And it's a great way to end an album that is so much more acoustic guitar and then electric on really any Stones record. And the songwriting becomes real mature compared to some of the older stuff like Nervous Breakdown or Mother's Little Helper. Um, and Keith really asserts himself with the guitar on this record. And it's really the beginning of a, a run of four albums where there's a lot of country and country blues type music Keith really dominates during this period with the guitar. It's just right before his heroin problems really kick in. And over the course of these four years and these records that they do, he becomes good friends with Graham Parsons. He starts to adopt the open G tuning that Ry Cooter and some Spanish players have had success with. It's an amazing period of development. And the growth and the real change that you notice in the music of the Rolling Stones is almost entirely built around country, folk, country blues type traditions. On Exile on Main Street, you get a little gospel thrown in as well, but it's incredibly different and distant from what they'll be doing at the end of the 70s when you get to things like Miss You and Emotional Rescue and the kind of let's try to keep up with the times uh, type efforts. This is a golden period in their music, and it's really great songwriting and acoustic guitars that kind of dominate throughout. Uh, Chris and I have listened to these records and talked about these records a ton. Uh, you might as well tell us what you're thinking, man. So two things come to mind. Uh, the first is how the stones could manage to take songs across multiple genres and somehow 
combined them into something that was not only palatable, but enjoyable to your, you know, your average rock fan of this particular era of music. So you take a song like No Expectations, for instance. Now, the Stones had a very deep and serious grounding in American blues music. Uh, in fact, they would cover songs like Love in Vain by Robert Johnson uh, in their act for quite a long time. And so here you have the Stones writing a song intentionally trying to write in that style. Now I am so poor. But never in my sweet short life have I felt like this before. Your heart is like a diamond. A blues song, and yet it becomes so heavily tinged with the country instrument instrumentation led by Keith and his acoustic guitar obsession. And if you, if somebody told you, oh, this is the Stones covering an old Lead Belly or Lightning Hopkins song, you might very well believe that. It just comes across as something that predates the Stones actually doing this. Um, for fans of the Grateful Dead, they may think of this in terms of Robert Hunter writing Cumberland Blues and saying the biggest compliment he ever got was when he heard somebody in a in a southern bar or a bar in a mining area say that it was too bad a band like the Grateful Dead run, ruined such a good song. So it's kind of the same thing here. You have the Stones intentionally you know branching out into these other areas and managing to do it in a way to where they're bringing this music to the masses. Uh, Dear Doctor, this is another song. It appears on Beggar's Banquet, which was released in 1968. This is definitely the heaviest, or the, the most, the earliest, I should say, of the heavily tinged country records. Oh, help me, please, Doctor. I'm damaged. There's a pain where there once was a heart. It's sleeping. Can't you please tear it out and preserve it right there in that jar? Um, this is still the original lineup of the band. So we have Brian Jones participating. He actually is playing harmonica on Dear Doctor. That's him rather than Mick. The song is more of a country blues instead of a straight country song. You know, again, if somebody was to tell you, hey, this is an old Lightning Hopkins song, or, oh, Lead Belly used to do this, it'd be pretty easy to hear that. Uh, Mick does sing in kind of the comedic style, which he continues to champion throughout their country performances for years to come. 
Although in, in my opinion, it does gradually go away. Um, but this is definitely when he's in the thick of that kind of, let me sing a lot of falsetto and humorous lyrical stylings. I, I've read interviews where Mick says that he always felt like the only way that he could personally perform country music and have it not feel like he was ripping something off as, as if he did it slightly tongue in cheek. So he's been very clear over the years that that's been his intention. Uh, you can clearly hear that come through in the lyrics, the way he sings them. Uh, this song itself, it's played in waltz time. We've talked about waltz time a bit on the show. Uh, El Paso being probably the most prominently we've discussed this, but there's something about that time signature that lets the song actually build quite nicely, in my opinion. I also do want to talk a little bit more about something you mentioned with this being the heavily influenced Keith Richards doing almost all the guitar work era years, decades after this album comes out, uh, the stones are going to do, I can't remember if it was two shows or four shows in Los Angeles. Uh, this is in, I believe 1989 on the steel wheels tour. The Stones ask Bon Jovi to open for them. And Bon Jovi says, no, my band's too big to open for anyone. We don't open for anyone. The Stones then ask what was a much, much bigger band at the time, at least in my opinion and the opinion of the music buying public, uh, Guns N' Roses, if they would open for them. And Guns N' Roses jumped at the chance. I mean, here's their musical heroes. You know, of course they want to open for these guys. And I had read an article in Rolling Stone uh, or maybe one of the other less intense music magazines. But it was talking about how Izzy Stradlin of Guns N' Roses and Keith Richards of The Stones both took the viewpoint that what truly showed somebody's ability to play guitar was how well they played acoustic guitar. I'm still just trying to get the... because I shot my voice. But that's Johnson's style, he saw that. It's very intricate stuff. Well, it's... A and then we in the blues, we got a D. I think maybe it's a good idea to get all the comments about Mick Jagger out of the way pretty quickly. Um, 
to avoid the temptation to be extra snarky, uh, which in the long run isn't really fair. I mean, I don't have any hit records out there yet. But yeah, Chris, you know, you're right. Uh, in interviews and comments about this part of the Stones catalog, Jagger has been keen to often refer to it as a pastiche. He's doing a mimic of kind of what he calls a exaggerated hillbilly country singing. It's something he's really, really milked to death at times. I think, you know, it gets a little annoying in places, but overall, I think it's fair to acknowledge that you have to really study and appreciate and understand something in its proper form if you're going to do it as a bit of a, a mimicry or a piss take kind of thing. You can't properly toy with something that you don't understand or appreciate on some level. The other thing in terms of Mick Jagger is a, a country singer, and this is a recording we've talked about before on the show. If the chieftains come to you and say, we would like you to sing on our version of Long Black Veil, well, you know, no argument. You must be doing something very right a, a huge amount of the time. So, well, the judge said, son. What's your alibi If you're somewhere else Well, you don't have to die And I spoke a naughty word Though it meant my life I'd been in the arms Of my best friend's wife Mix exaggerated hillbilly singing gets a little annoying at times. Overall, I mean, come on, again, if the chieftains say, we need you for Long Black Veil, you are very good at what you're doing. So this trend continues with the Rolling Stones. In November of 1969, we get Let It Bleed. And again, uh, Ryan Jones completely missing in action, dismissed from the band, and passes away during this time. Mick Taylor, who will be his replacement, has just come on board, and aside from a few little overdubs here and there on the record, it really, you know, too new to contribute at this point. This is a record where one of the non-album singles that comes out around the same time is Honky Tonk Woman, a song that, you know, one of the Stones' more popular numbers. We all know it. We've all heard it a bazillion times. Their original take on it, and something that you'll hear from an interview here where Keith talks about wanting to get back to a Jimmy Rogers kind of vibe and what would it sound like if it was updated to the Stones? It was a process uh, of writing Country Honk and saying, this sounds like, you know, Jimmy Rogers or Hank Williams. How would it be played now? 
and so we then projected it forward. But at the same time, it was a damn old good country song, and a damn good country song quite often is a damn good rock and roll song. is mostly known for its electric music, for Gimme Shelter, for Midnight Rambler. But what starts on Beggar's Banquet really gets blended in nicely here to what is more of a traditional stone-sounding record. It doesn't rely on the acoustic country-type music as much as Beggar's Banquet did. This is more of a 50-50 um, but the quality of the music just keeps going up and up. I, I think this is, as far as listening to Keith Richards as a guitar player and as somebody who's kind of shaping the sound of his band... leap ahead of beggar's banquet it's a lot more confident it's not we're trying to bash this out because we love this music and we want to see what happens this is we've done it once we know what's going to happen and we're going to kick it up a notch and uh, i think let it bleed on the days i don't say exile on main street let it bleed is my other favorite stones album easy choice I guess continuing the hayride tradition of not a lot of controversial disagreements, I'm going to agree with most of what you said. Uh, for sure, this is a more polished sounding album than Beggar's Banquet. Uh, speculating on the reasons why, probably they're just getting better at learning how to deal without having uh, Brian in the band so much anymore. You know, as you mentioned, this is this is his last gasp with trying to be not only a member of the band, but a, a functioning human being. He's 
essentially lost himself to to drugs and partying and even you know he he doesn't leave the band when he dies he he's fired from the band slightly beforehand although essentially simultaneously since both things happen within a relatively short period of time so this is kind of the stones searching for their new sound but also solidifying what they started to put together on the prior record it's also really important to point out one other line of demarcation that falls right after this record this is the last of the pre-altamont stones records and a man attending altamont which was the stones free show uh towards the end of 1969 uh he uh, his name is meredith hunter and he's murdered by the hell's angels and this actually is very clearly caught on camera you'll if you watch the Gimme Shelter Stones documentary, you will see this incident actually happen live. Hey man, look, we're splitting. You know, if those cats can't, if you can, we're splitting, man, if those cats don't stop beating everybody up inside. I want them out of the way, man. I don't like you. That guy's got a gun out there and he's shooting the guy. Hey, people! Hey, people! Come on, let's be cool. People, please. There's no reason to hassle anybody. Please don't be mad at If you move back and sit down, we can continue and we will continue. And it changes everything. First of all, it puts the stones in the crosshairs of, you know, the most dangerous band in the world. Look what happened. Look what they did. They're somewhat at fault it was their idea it was their free festival um but it completely changes them as a band and so you're going to hear that in some of the music that we'll talk about and a lot of the music that we'll gloss over coming up in this episode but you also hear the other part of the change that comes around this era and that's the change of the transition from from brian jones to mick taylor so country honk is actually recorded uh, several months prior to Honky Tonk Women. Months and months prior. But it's not released until something like five months after. And the two songs are essentially the same song, slightly different lyrics, completely different arrangement, but it's essentially the same song being released twice by the same band. the song starts out as is country honk what it eventually evolves into as a direct result of mick taylor's influence is honky tonk women 
you get that slower, more laid back groove. You get the more well-known version of the song. And that happens as a result of mixed playing. Uh, he does play on country honk. He plays a little bit of slide steel, but he's featured all over honky tonk women. Uh, Keith has actually spoken in interviews and said that the song itself was intentionally written in a Jimmy Rogers, Hank Williams style. Uh, and Jim mentioned Graham Parsons starts to be a part of the Stones scene and the Stones entourage, specifically Keith, uh, but the Stones in general at this point in time. And he's actually the one who recommends the gentleman who plays fiddle. Uh, his name is Byron Berlin or Berline. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Honestly, I don't know anything about the guy. I just know that Graham is the one who said, hey, you guys are looking for a fiddle player. This is your guy. Uh, and as Jim mentioned as well, uh, the fiddle parts were recorded outdoors, which does account for a lot of the ambient sound. Uh, and you will hear those sounds in the recording, but it gives it an authenticity. Uh, it, it, there's, there's a weight to the air around the recording equipment that you can actually hear. And the way Jim described it, I think is perfect, which is the effect of acoustic instruments backing away from and into the microphone and bluegrass performances. So by the time we get to 1971, the next Stones album is Sticky Fingers, the uh, one with the famous Zipper album cover, the Andy Warhol design. The rest of the rock and roll world is kind of catching up to what the Stones have been doing for a few years now. Between 1970 and 1972, we really get the rise of the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young collective we get the band in the peak prime of their americana and country music output We have Bob Dylan coming off of Nashville Skyline and John Wesley Harding and embracing that type of music. George Harrison on All Things Must Pass really starts to develop a traditional kind of country blues wide style. And on the Bob Dylan song, uh, the one they collaborate on, If Not For You, that's a real nice country vibe on that one. And then also during this time, we get the Grateful Dead really kind of reach a peak in their career with Working Men's Dead. We'll give you a little slice of Cumberland Blues here. Some of the fellas making nothing at all. And you can hear him cry. 
Can I go, buddy? Can I go down? Take your ship, half a man. Gotta get down to the Cumberland Mine. Gotta get down to the Cumberland Mine. That's where I mainly spend my time. Make good money, five dollars a day. Made any more, I might move away. song and then american beauty uh, so everybody else is kind of catching up to the stones in the early 70s then you'll start to see the eagles and linda ronstadt and some of these other things that come out of southern california uh, during this time as well but the stones are really still leading the way and they really seem to have the most sort of raw sincerity about it when we get to Sticky Fingers in 1971, it's really leaps and bounds away from Beggar's Banquet. Sticky Fingers almost sounds like they knew that in a few years, rock and roll concerts were going to be heading into football stadiums. record that's really meant for concert for live performance but the wonderful two exceptions buried in this record are really the two country songs that people most readily associate with the rolling stones you get the real heavy graham parsons influence on the beautiful soulful classic wild horses of a dark humor twisted party song sort of thing going on with dead flowers and you can send me dead flowers every morning send me dead flowers by the mail send me dead flowers to my great open mic song it's d a and g pretty simple not a whole lot of words and not a real proper range in the vocal so yeah it's fun to bash out and steve earl has done this one willie nelson has done it and, and again sticky fingers is really 
that first hint of this is music for rock bands to play in football stadiums, but it winds up having the two most well-known journeys into country music that the Stones really ever do. Uh, Wild Horses is sad. It's incredibly evocative the way that the musical arrangement is. Mick really pulls off an amazing job with the vocal. Slide through my hands Wild horses Couldn't drag me Parsons had also done a version of it. It's just really exceptional work. And then with Dead Flowers, like I said, it's kind of a twisted party song for isolated drunkies in their basement. A contradiction in terms, but you have the world's greatest rock and roll band posing as an incredibly great country band. Who cares about the labels at that point? Yeah, there's a few things that people should be aware of here. And before we even start talking about the two specific songs that we're delving into uh, between Wild Horses and Dead Flowers, I do want to point out that the what we used to call the second side of this album, but specifically the last three songs, are probably one of my favorite three-song runs on any of the Stones albums ever. Uh, you have Sister Morphine, then Dead Flowers, and then Moonlight Mile, which is one of my, definitely my favorite of the Unknown Stone songs, um, but it's one of my favorites overall. So at this point in time, you just start seeing, you know, again, a different band, still the same roots, still mostly the same members, but they're really trying to change things about their perception. You know, in the mid to late 60s, they really lean into this image of darkness and mysterious, you know, are they evil? Who knows? Pleased to meet you. Hope you guess my name. But what puzzling you is the nature of my game. But. Again, when Altamont happens, the band is looking for a very, you know, quick and intense shift away from the darkness. And that's what gets us sticky fingers. And, I, you know, I really like your description of it seems like they knew rock was about to move into football stadiums because the, these songs are larger than life. You know, you're right. It sounds like something that's meant to be blasting out of the speakers at Giant Stadium rather than something that's meant to be played, you know, at the local club where you go see your favorite bands. Certainly it's, they've moved out of the basketball arenas and into the bigger, richer experience. Uh, I would say, you know, as far as wild horses goes, I've always liked this story that I read in Stanley Booth's book about the 1969 tour that the stones did. 
they actually recorded this song or most of the tracks. I don't know if the entire thing was recorded and assembled here, but they recorded the song in Muscle Shoals. And Jim Dickinson, who was a rather famous session guy there, you know, he is itching for the chance to sit in and play with the Stones. And they need somebody to play piano on the song. And the only piano in the studio is a tack piano. So Dickinson is just lamenting the fact that here was his chance to play with this band that he idolizes. And unfortunately it's never going to work because the piano has tacks in it. And it just, it's not the sound he's envisioning in his head, but they tell him play it anyway. Let's see what happens. And if you really listen to the piano track in that song, it is incredible. It's just some incredible work. And, you know, again, I can see how the experienced musician is thinking, I don't know that this will work. But it it works, and it works quite well. So, yeah, this is the Stones. They're turning a corner. They're going for a bigger sound. They're going for more emotion, and they're capturing all that. As they, this is really, to me, when they hit their peak as a band. All right. the Stones start to take off and really build a world of rock and roll. They're no longer competing with the Beatles because the Beatles are no longer a going concern. And you start to hear the Stones version of what a Beatles world will sound like. So this amazing classic era in the Stones career kind of comes to an end in May of 1972 with the record that most people who talk about these things consider the finest Stones album ever. That is the double set Exile on Main Street. And this record was recorded mostly in the basement of a house that Keith Richards had rented in France the Stones were trying to get away from the income tax laws in England at the time. So they packed everything up. Keith rented a house, and most of Exile on Main Street is recorded in that basement. It's 
the subject of a documentary about the making of the record it's kind of a well-known story within anybody who likes to talk about the rolling stones and their legendary career the record has two real big hits for the stones uh in tumbling dice and the keith richards track happy record is kind of the end of the stones actively dipping into the country and and country blues tradition but it's done incredibly well on this record Uh, we have sweet virginia We have one of my favorites. It's kind of set up as a honky-tonk style arrangement. Again, kind of Graham Parsons vibe to it. But the chord change is more, you dip into that minor chord there, and it's kind of more of a gospel sound with the actual chords up against a honky-tonk shuffle. And the story of... A kind of down and out guitar player, it's torn and frayed. Perkins plays pedal steel on it. Um, I think it's really underrated. It's easy for some of these songs to get lost in exile because it's a double record. And things like Happy and Tumbling Dice are real obvious and well known and kind of jump out right at you. Um, and then at the end of the record, you, you get Shine a Light, which is not straight country, it's really more of a gospel track but I include it in the discussion because it's so incredibly rooted in Southern American music that everything we've been talking about across these four albums from Beggar's Banquet through to Exile, um, the fascination that the Stones have with the music of the Southern United States, from Memphis to Muscle Shoals to New Orleans and to Texas, it's it's a real deep dive that they take and it, it's not done as a well urban cowboy just came out we better do a few tracks for this next record it's something that they just initiate out of the love of this kind of music
And over these four records, you know, the best of their career, you get at least two proper country songs each record. It's it's a remarkable output. I think it's easy to overlook because of all the hits that they're, you know, that we're exposed to all the time on the radio. But yeah, Exile is sort of the the crowning, you know, finale to this period. Horn and Frayed and, and Sweet Virginia are wonderful tracks. Uh, starting with Sticky Fingers, the other thing that gets added into the music here is a saxophone player named Bobby Keys, who's a country and blues player from Texas. And he really becomes a regular part of the Rolling Stones uh, studio band and live band at this point. And it adds a nice element to the music. In Sweet Virginia, you get kind of sax and harmonica back and forth. acoustic guitar country kind of sway and it's a real simple song and it just really works nicely um it's an amazing record that's why so many people talk about it so often recorded in keith's basement in france exile on main street all right folks here we go a little bit of hayride controversy for you doesn't happen often it's gonna happen now Jim is not wrong when he says if you ask people what they believe the best Stones record to be, more often than not, you will hear people say Exile on Main Street. Uh, I have never particularly thought that. To me, this would probably be, bar none, the greatest of all the Stones albums if it was a single album and you could take some of the songs that, to me, just, I, I don't, I don't, particularly care for turd on the run or soul survivor or rocks off or a bunch of the other songs there's just songs here that i think take away from the brilliance of the rest of the album however i don't want people to be left with the impression that i don't enjoy the record or think that it is one of their best those things are not disputable by anyone with even the tiniest bit of common sense. The record is great. The songs are mostly good. And certainly the two that we're talking about here are among the best. 
So Sweet Virginia is fairly wide, widely thought to be inspired by Graham Parsons. He was definitely hanging out with Keith at this point. As for the song itself, you know, it's interesting in that Willie Nelson sort of way where you have a country song that's really a drug song that's really a country song. So that takes us to what is hands down my favorite song on this album, uh, which is Torn and Frayed. The whole side two of the four sides is the most country-tinged. This is the one that has Sweet Virginia, then Torn and Frayed, then Sweet Black Angel, and then finally Loving Cup. So really all four of the songs are fairly straightforward country, country-influenced rock songs. The song is clearly autobiographically about Keith. Uh, we're talking about a guitar player who is, at various points in time, reckless, restless. His coat is torn and frayed. He's completely haggard and running on fumes. Uh, as for the track itself, it's not actually Bill Wyman playing bass here. Bill's not on this track at all. That's Mick Taylor on bass for this one. Uh, everything I've ever read about the sessions for this album are that it was all done fairly piecemeal because this is where Keith starts to slip into a pretty serious heroin issue. Um, you know, he and Graham Parsons are, are doing a lot of drugs together. And so every single time the band is trying to record, they're dealing with first trying to make sure that Keith is in any sort of shape to be able to record and then to deal with all the hangers-on that are there just supplying Keith with drugs and whatever else is going on. So, you know, it's easy to see how, much like with the Beatles sessions for the White Album, not everybody is there every day. There's all kinds of things going on that are having negative influences on what the output is. So, you know, it's, it's amazing that we're given this record from that set of circumstances. This easily could have been, you know, one of those albums that just never got made and exists only in the minds of the fan. But instead, they actually were able to put something out. And again, while I don't personally believe it's the best of their albums, I usually reserve that judgment for either Sticky Fingers or Let It Bleed. Uh, it's still a great album. And, and I particularly can admire what came out of that group of people in that particular place and time considering the circumstances. Oh, I 
So, yeah, fellow music lovers, if somebody comes up to you and says, let's spend 1972 in the south of France in Keith Richards' basement with a bunch of recording equipment, fun, trouble, adventure, yeah, all of those things. The friendship and the musical relationship between Graham Parsons and Keith Richards kind of comes to an end during these sessions. The debauchery, the drug use was so much. And again, early 70s, France, you're in Keith's basement. How poorly do you have to conduct yourself to be asked to leave? That is Graham Parsons at this point in his personal life. So he is asked to leave. He leaves. Chris is absolutely right. The record was recorded very much in the, oh, I have an idea who's in the house at the time. On the track for Happy, the producer, Jimmy Miller, plays drums, and Keith plays bass and all of the guitar parts. But it is, you know, their first best, their second best. I, you know, it's it's up there. It's an incredible piece of music. It is the beginning of a five to six year period where the band kind of loses Keith to his heroin addiction. The records that follow, Goat's Head Soup, Black and Blue, uh, It's Only Rock and Roll, they're not as good as what had been going on before. Mick Taylor leaves the band and they reconvene around 1977 to work on some girls with Ronnie Wood as the new, and it turns out permanent replacement. He's still there. He has a background playing in a band called the faces with Rod Stewart. He was also the bass player in the original Jeff Beck group lineup. And he plays a lot of slide, and he plays a lot of pedal steel. They bounce back with a really great record. There's a big tour. This is the beginning of them mostly being in football stadiums at this point in the 1978 tour. And as they're preparing the record, they wind up recording three country songs. Uh, the Hank Williams song, You Win Again, is part of the sessions. A song written by Donnie Fritz that Waylon Jennings had a big hit with in the early 70s. Keith does a nice version of We Had It All. 
never live those times again So I let these dreams Take me back to where we've been And I'll stay there with you Just as long as I can Oh, it was so good Oh, it was so good It was so good When I was your man And then the one that makes it on the record is kind of like Dear Doctor in, in the tongue-in-cheek and the sort of throwaway humor of it. It's a song called Far Way Out. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about Some Girls and the track that appears on their Far Away Eyes. I was driving home early Sunday morning through Bakersfield listening to gospel music on the colored radio station. And the preacher said, you know, you always have a long Now, I was telling you earlier, before we were recording, that when I was growing up, Some Girls was probably my favorite Stones album. This is really just due to the fact that it was one of the ones that was in the house. Uh, I listened to it over and over and over again. I love Shattered. Uh, before They Make Me Run is my favorite Keith song, bar none. Although it's annoying to me as a fairly incompetent guitar player that that song is in such a crazy tuning. Because I would actually work to learn that one if it, if it wasn't in such an oddball tuning. You know, learning two things is just, they're, they're, come on, come on now. So yeah, again, as, as a kid, this was really my favorite album, but that's really only due to the fact that it was the one that we had around. Uh, the other Stone stuff I listened to was mostly cassettes that friends had or their parents had or whatever. So I really listened to this album front to back more times than I can count. So when I think Stone's country, honestly, Far Away Eyes is kind of, to me, the definitive stone's country song and again it's just because it's the one that i listened to endlessly as a kid uh from a technical perspective uh here we have ronnie wood featuring on some pedal steel uh the man is a true instrumentalist you know as you mentioned he's been the bass player in bands and he's been a guitar player in bands so you know the man can play at a high level multiple instruments including pedal steel 
I also think that, you know, we, we've mocked Mick a little bit or certainly criticized Mick a little bit for the delivery he generally gives vocally. And while this song does have a bit of a tongue-in-cheek vocal delivery as well, I actually think Mick's vocal performance here is next level. You know what kind of ass you got. weariness just come through the way he delivers the lines where it's half sung half spoken but his voice really becomes an instrument all on its own as he paints the picture for you you know how he's driving home early one sunday morning through bakersfield and he's listening to gospel songs and he's so honored that the preacher says that the Lord will always be by his side, that he decides to run a bunch of red lights in God's honor. And, and the preacher said, you know, you always have the Lord by your side. And I was so pleased to be informed of this, that I ran 20 red lights in his honor. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. You know, it's just something about the lyrics, the way Mick delivers them. You can just see this happening as he's half singing, half speaking these lines. And, and you know, even though most of us have not been driving home early one Sunday morning through Bakersfield, listening to gospel music on the colored radio station, we've all been somewhere where we were completely road weary we just wanted to be wherever we were trying to go. And so this is a song that it's always been easy for me to, you know, it takes me back to various points in time and not necessarily in a negative way. I also find it incredibly interesting that this was originally released as the B-side of the single for Miss You, which is, of course, the Stones' disco track. Uh, Miss You is definitely an experiment that has lost the time because it doesn't stand up that well. Uh, it was fine when it came out. Everyone seemed to be doing a disco song, but it it did not age well. On the other hand, Far Away Eyes has aged fine. But what an interesting concept. Let's put our, you know, it's like the rock and roll mullet. Let's put the disco in the front country in the back and see what happens. The Stones' trend to do country tracks on their records diminishes in recent years um, after some girls, there's not very much. In 1994 on Voodoo Lounge, which is a decent record, Keith with Ronnie Wood on Brilliant Pedal Steel, Keith really kind of works that lovable pirate image of his uh, with a track called The Worst.
the Stones have essentially released some sort of at least country-tinged song in every decade they've released a song in. You know, we, we have stuff in the 60s and the 70s, a little bit in the 80s. It's not as good in the 90s. It's not hardly existing at all in the 2000s. We don't do anything in 2010, but here we are in the 20s, and we're still circling back. So full power to the Stones, full power to their love of country music. It you know again this is one of the very specific bands that I have in mind when I tell people about my love of music and rabbit holes. This is where it comes from. This is where I discovered a lot of blues music. This is where I discovered a lot of country music was my love for the Stones. Sweethearts together when two hearts beat as one. Sweethearts together. Chris, you know, your point about rabbit holes and trying to work backwards, you know, the band you love, who did they love? And before that, who did they, you know, get into? And at this point, you know, in Keith Richards, you have a guy who wants to write songs like Muddy Waters, play guitar like Chuck Berry, and sing like George Jones. I've got a bad from the start you give me the run around now if you play with fire it's sure to burn i've known this all of my life go on me on your way well honey i had my say cause i'm with you for life ah this one in every yard i'm getting mighty tired i'm Listen to the Stones music, you're getting a little Merle Haggard, you're getting a lot of Chuck, you're getting a little Muddy Waters and Willie Dixon. And, and this is such a universal and essential thing in all art that we can even, you know, for some backup here, bring in heavy metal legend Ronnie James Dio. And when we get to that idea of, you know, it's all one song, The Unbroken Circle. You know, even he's on board with us. If your circus is unbroken, then you're a lucky man. Cause it never, never, never has for me. But what happens at this time really cements the stones legacy into the world of country music and it's something that happens almost solely because of keith richards by the time we get into the late 80s and into the 1990s keith is a guy who understands that he's part of a larger thing it's super fun to be the guitar player in the rolling stones it's super fun to be rock and roll's most lovable pirate who just keeps on chugging year after year after year, despite all the jokes. 
but he understands what starts with Robert Johnson and goes through Muddy Waters and Duke Ellington and Maybell Carter and Hank Williams and Jimmy Rogers, just all the way through. And to soak up those influences and then very much like what George Harrison did with Carl Perkins into the nineties and then into the two thousands, if you see any kind of country music, all-star concert or TV special tribute show type thing, Heath is always there. But now then I lost forms a wonderful friendship initially with Jerry Lee Lewis, who had been on package tours with the Rolling Stones back in the early 60s. But he, through that connection, becomes very good friends with Merle Haggard. They play together on a few TV specials. Person I really met him was sitting on that, uh, was sitting on the drum riser. Jerry Lewis was rehearsing, and we were going through, you know, good golly, Miss Marley, and, and Jerry's pumping the shit. I turned round to my right, and there's this other cat sitting next to me. And he's wearing, uh, you know, one of those straw stetsons and a grizzled beard. And he looks at me and he gives me a grin and I give him a grin. And I get two more bars through the song and suddenly I realize it's more. You know, and I almost lost it then, you know. I'm sitting next to one of the greats. And turn back. He turns around and gives me a nod and a wink and we carry on. I managed to get through the song. But he playing bad shit, you know what I mean? Picking, you know. I recall I mean, to meet, you know, one of your... One of your favorites, one of your heroes, maybe.
and I'm guessing a love of guitars and a love of a little leaf doesn't hurt. You have that mutual admiration society between Willie Nelson and Keith Richards. When you sit there in your silk talking to those rich friends that you know. Back in our Rockabilly episode, we had talked about the idea of the sort of carrying the torch and uh, Jeff Beck with Scotty Moore, with Cliff Gallup, with Les Paul, George Harrison, with Chet Atkins and Carl Perkins. And, and Keith really does a lot of the heavy lifting here because he's the one who's willing to go out and do all these TV specials and have to talk to Dick Clark and all that just to play with Jerry Lee Lewis the respect and the love and just the kid in a candy store vibe about it. Yeah, Willie and I are going to pick this up. I mean, give a hand to the man. I mean, Willie, I mean. He's very, very good at what he does. And apparently he's figured out a way how to take that out and have a good time with the people that he grew up admiring. And that means anybody influenced by the Stones, and geez, their new record is pretty good. Anybody influenced by the Rolling Stones is picking up little bits and pieces of Jimmy Rogers, of Muddy Waters, of George Jones, of Willie Nelson, of Merle Haggard, and, and certainly of Chuck Berry. You know, that's that's the biggest torch that Keith carries. But all those things are part of this kind of commercial institution and cultural phenomena for what almost 60 years here that people very often call the world's greatest rock and roll band i don't know that they are every day but they're there they're in the conversation and they're a damn fine country band on the side So this episode's drink is a vodka-based drink called Nuclear Waste. So, you know, giant strides have been made in medical science lately, and uh, this is why I'm able to be able to say to you, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, folks, this time, instead of going back to the well of the John Wayne recipe book, which we have been using for so many things, uh, I went and found what is alleged to be Keith Richards' favorite drink. Now, let me tell you, 
I found an awful lot of variations of this drink, but the one I found that seemed to be the most specific to Keith and the most basic, it's just two parts vodka to one part orange soda. So Sunkist or Fanta or whatever you want to use is fine for the soda. The other ingredients that I have seen uh, mentioned in various iterations are some De Kuiper melon liqueur, some fresh lemon juice, some fresh lime juice, some fresh both of those. So you can experiment with this one. Probably you don't want to experiment as heavily as, say, Keith did in the 70s, but let's get some experimentation in there. Find our favorite version of this recipe and then email us at sixstringhayride at yahoo.com. like to remind you to email us at sixstringhayride at yahoo.com. Six is spelled out. You can also search us uh, on Facebook as Six String Hayride. Or what we'd really appreciate you doing is finding us on Patreon under Six String Hayride as well. Well, folks, thanks again for joining your hosts, Chris Wainscott and Jim O'Malley on the Six String Hayride classic country podcast we are here for all of your classic country rockabilly early rock and roll little gospel little blues a lot of excellent country music themed recipes and basically we are here to keep your musical circle rocking bopping and very much unbroken so thank you for sticking with us. We will see you down the road real soon. And again, whether it's in your home, in your community, wherever it is you do your thing, keep your circle unbroken. Stay well, stay safe, and we'll see you real soon. Oh, can the circle be unbroken by and by, Lord, by and by? There's a bitter home awaiting in the sky, Lord, in the sky. One of these days, and it won't be long, I'll rejoin them in a song. I'm gonna join the family circle at the throne. No, the circle won't be broken by and by, Lord, by and by. Remember, the force will be with you, always.